Well, it's my pleasure to introduce Byron Domes uh, to you this morning. Uh, first met Byron um, this summer. Mark Maxwell and I uh, were out at Camp Caroline uh, sharing the speaking uh, duties at their first family camp, and so met him uh, at this time. Uh, I was interested when I read Byron's bio that he went to Briarcrest. Careful, careful. I won't tell you where I went. Okay, and uh, Taylor College University, University of Alberta, University of Calgary, really spreading that educational dollar around. So that's uh, really good of you to help the economy keep, keep going there. Um, Byron lives with his wife and their two boys uh, who are four and seven, just northeast of Edmonton. Um, he is social worker, house parent, and supervisor for Renaissance Homes, and so he'll be telling us more about that. But we are very glad that you're here this morning, and uh, let me pray for you. Father, I ask that you would be with Byron as he speaks to us. Father, you have laid things on his heart to share with us today, and so would you help him do that? And help us to do our part, too, that we would be good listeners. And all of us together depend upon your spirit at work in our lives. So would you bless him and bless our time in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, Mark. Am I on? Am I good? Can people hear me? Hi. <laughs> I appreciate, um, well, I appreciate the verse, first of all, that Mark shared this morning. The one where God is our refuge and how he even mentioned that we don't get a lot of earthquakes in Alberta, but I'm probably in need of God being my refuge because there is some quaking and trembling that might happen here um, on my part. I don't do this very often. And I also really appreciated the one song that we sang this morning, I Will Follow. It's especially relevant to what we're going to be talking about um, a little bit today. So, just looking at the clock, seeing how much of your time I can take. Good morning again. <laughs> when I was originally given the Acts chapter 20 as the passage that we're going to be talking about today, this morning, um, it was subtitled, When Christians Are Called to Hard Places. Uh, I didn't make that subtitle. And, and I understand that in the course of your chapels, you've been working through the book of Acts, specifically as they relate to the elements and the attributes of the Holy Spirit. And as I read and studied this passage, um, it seemed to me that maybe a different title was um, necessary, maybe, maybe helpful. Because as I kept going through it, um, it was the idea of comfort, the comfort, and encouragement of the Holy Spirit that kept coming forward for me. My hope is that after our time here today, we'll have a deeper understanding and connection with the vital importance of the Holy Spirit as He encourages us in our faith. That encouragement um, in Acts chapter 20 takes on a few different forms, so we're, we're going to tease those out a little bit. Um, beginning with the first couple of verses, we are met with the word encouragement. I'm going to just read those quickly. Oh, yeah, I'm supposed to have a PowerPoint going. This might be a real lesson in multitasking. All right, so. Um, 
verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 1. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of, again, encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece. All right. Where he stayed three months because some Jews had plotted against him, just as he was about to set sail for Syria. In the Greek, the word encouragement in this passage reads parakalesis. Now, a brief study of the word parakalesis reveals that it is, in fact, the same word that Jesus uses when he is comforting his disciples in John chapter 14, verse 16, and in 15, 26. I don't know if I'm... Oh, yeah, there we go. Why is Jesus comforting his disciples here? Well... Basically, he had just told them that he's going to die, and they're not allowed to follow him where he's going. So, he's so they're distressed, very distressed. And as you can imagine, because after you've just spent, well, you've just spent three years with this guy, this amazing rabbi who you now think really could be the Messiah, the prophets had foretold. More than this, Jesus is your friend. He's your mentor. He's your guide. When he looks at you, you know he sees all of you, inside, outside, upside down maybe. Peter died upside down, didn't he? Yeah. So the idea here is that he still accepts you. He still cherishes you, for you, in spite of you. <clears throat> Without reservation. And not to mention that his miracles are pretty cool too. So now Jesus, who you've been with for three years, nonstop says he's going to die. You might need some comforting too. Depending on your translation, the word in John, parakalesis, might be interpreted in a few different ways. Here in the NRSV, it says, I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another advocate to be with you forever. In, verse 15, in chapter 15, 26, when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who comes from the Father, he will testify on my behalf. These are some other, these are the words that Jesus uses. This is how we translate the word paraclesis in John. Helper, companion, advocate, the Holy Spirit. They're all the same word. And it's the same word that Paul uses, or actually that Luke uses, in Acts chapter 20, for paraclesis, and he says it's interpreted as encouragement, encouraging. After this point in time begins the great cycle of events that would lead to Jesus' glorious and terrible passion, to his death and resurrection, and ultimately to the gift of the Holy Spirit, to a beleaguered community of followers on Pentecost. Arguably, or actually, I should, I should probably say unarguably, this could be one of the most important points in history, not just church history, in history because of the effect that these followers, a motley bunch of fishermen, tax collectors, cynics, would be willing to go to their deaths for, effecting a fearless change on the earth. And why would this rowdy bunch dare to forsake anything that resembles sanity or self-preservation because on on the day of pentecost jesus makes good 
on the promise that he made this day. Everything that follows in the book of Acts after Pentecost can and must be read and understood as the working out of the Holy Spirit in the lives of these disciples and of the church by extension. Which brings us to the chapter this day. Because here we have the Holy Spirit as encouraging, or maybe we could call him the encourager, paracalesing the believers through Paul's ministry. Encouragement is a vital part of the life of the church. And in Acts chapter 20, we're going to learn a little bit more about how that can happen. Before we do, however, I want to make a careful distinction between simple encouragement, like if I'm golfing with my dad, I might say, good shot. And really, in domes speak, that means I love you, but. <laughs> or I could say to one of you, I really like your jacket. Um, those are all just regular run-of-the-mill encouragement. There's a different kind of encouragement that happens when we do it with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 20, we'll see a form of this encouragement. It may not always be all roses and good job, buddy. In fact, sometimes the way that we are encouraged in the Holy Spirit is going to be difficult, and it's going to be hard. Let me put it this way. How many people here have a grandma who makes apple pie? How many love grandma's apple pie? Or moms, or anyone. Anyone put cheddar cheese on their apple pie? Yes! That's, that's like the spirit and then some. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Um, in order to make her apple pies, grandma takes some apples. Usually, or not usually, but sometimes they might be getting a little bit soft. And they might be turning a little bit. They'll, they'll be bruised. And even though you could probably eat them and still feel okay about it, you know that once grandma gets the coring and slicing, cutting, and adding her stuff, throwing it in the oven, well, kind of like us, there might be some pain involved. And it sure can get hot in God's refining fire. And yes, I'm mixing my metaphors here, but in the end, well, the Holy Spirit, when he encourages us, is turning apples into apple pie. And just like that apple pie represents an opportunity to get excited about the yummy, we can be encouraged and even excited about what God is doing in our lives and in the church. So let's see what the rest of Acts chapter 20... Done with the Holy Spirit. We're talking about this. Okay. That's the Bible. We're going to talk a little bit. We're going to read from verse 7 again. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. I remember college. I did that a few times. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where they were meeting. Seated in the window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep. As Paul talked on and on and on. You've never had a professor do that, have you? Um, <laughs> when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground and from the third story was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself onto the young man, put his arms around him and said, Don't be alarmed! He's alive! And then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. Yeah, he just kind of kept going. 
the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. This seems like a bit of a strange addition in this chapter. Almost like, for me, it, it didn't seem to quite fit when I first read it through with the rest of what's going on in the chapter. But as we will see, it will absolutely play out along with these themes of encouragement and comfort. First up, and most obvious, is that it's an example of Christ and the Holy Spirit's power over death. That's encouraging. I mean, given the context, as we'll read a little bit later, Paul is anticipating his imprisonment, torture, and death, and telling everyone that he's meeting with in this chapter that they're never going to see him again. And so we might as well toss him a bone and, I don't know, raise someone from the dead so that they all know it's going to be okay because they don't need to be afraid of death. It's not our enemy anymore. I also think it's kind of encouraging that we have these kinds of stories in the Bible in the first place. I mean, what I think is the Bible's full of real stories. Some of them are a little bit funny, like this one. Many others are dark or desperate. In fact, I cannot think of one Bible hero, hero, or narrative that lacks this authenticity, this humanity. The, the church that I attend right now, we're working through uh, some of the patriarchal narratives in Genesis. And uh, as you may or may not know, when you really spend time with Jacob and all the stuff that he got up to, or his kids, or their sisters, or Abraham and his wives, and they're squabbling and all the way down through the judges and the kings of Israel and Judah? Well, if you're going to make up, and this is an apologetic of sorts, a deluded mythological religion whose primary aim is the inoculation of the masses or just simple wish fulfillment, those are not very helpful stories, are they? But if you want to depict an accurate and historically reliable world in which God is in our midst of our brokenness, our silliness, our futility. And he's working out his love and redemptive plan for us, in us, with us, no matter what. Then these, these are the stories that you use. The encouraging thing about the story of Eutychus is, well, imagine with me, if you will. You're sitting in the dark hall of a ship bound for the coast of Israel. It is evening. And the only light right now is coming from a few guttering candles reflecting off the eyes of Paul, Luke, and maybe some of their other companions moving from Asia. Tychicus, ever uncomfortable, with lengthy silences, leans over to Trophimus, his buddy, and says, probably too loudly, because there's some people trying to doze in the back of the ship's berth, but Tychicus never could manage his volume very well. It was always louder, louder with him. Hey, Troph, I was just remembering that kid in Troas. What was his name? You did me, uh, you did me, um, eucalypt, no, um, hey, Gaius, Gaius, what was that kid's name? I am not yelling. Eutychus, right. I just did like this. <laughs> oh, man. That was something. Remember how hot it was up there? And all those lamps and people in one room. And Paul, no offense, brother, but you were just going on and on and on. Hey, I said no offense. And come on. You know how you get like that sometimes on a roll? You barely even missed a beat after you woke him up. You just kept going all the way till morning. What's that? Oh, 
I know, Luke, I know he died. He wasn't just sleeping. You checked him over, all that stuff. I was just remembering how crazy it was. And awesome, right? I mean, Luke, you got to put that in your book, man. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Just make it fit, okay? <sighs> and make sure you put how Paul was going on and on and on until the kid fell asleep. <laughs> it makes it real. I mean, who knows? Paul, anyone who knows Paul would say, yep, that happened. Because sure, it sure sounds like Paul. I love you, Paul. <laughs> And come on, it was a little weird with you all going and like hogging him and his limp arms are dangling. And you, I love you, Paul, but you know what? That was awesome. Praise God. I like those stories. I think that perhaps our lives need that once in a while. An almost comedic break from the weight and pressure of lives full of pain and suffering. Jesus promised us, that in this world we will have suffering. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says it a little differently. <laughs> Blessed are those who mourn, for, anyone? They will be comforted. How is it blessed to be mourning unless the comfort that we receive is somehow better than the loss we experience. I'd be willing to say that if the net result of some loss in any of your lives means that you draw closer to God through the comfort of the Holy Spirit, which was Jesus' promises to us, then yes, this is a truth that we can know. Loss can be blessed. Mourning can be blessed. And I think this is exactly what happened in Troas. Because you better believe there was a bit of a time elapse from when Eutychus fell out of the window, Paul realizes this happened, runs down three flights of stairs, and gets there and holds him. In that space of time, consider the horror of what had just happened. Eutychus lying broken on the paving stones, probably a, an arm or two at an awkward angle. There's certainly going to be blood. His skull might be fractured. Maybe his parents were there. Can you imagine the shock? The overwhelming tidal wave of pain, sudden and unlooked for. And then just as sudden and unlooked for, some inexplicable comfort and even joy. What a ride. This does seem to be a bit of God's pattern of working with people. For it seems to me, no, not seems, God does have a tender and special place for those who are broken and weeping, who are reaching out to him, not just to solve another problem, but just to be held. Are you there? Have you been there? And like Eutychus, are we willing to allow the Holy Spirit to take you in his arms and comfort you? and bring you back to life. The, ren the remainder of our time, we'll be looking at Paul's speech of farewell to the Ephesian elders. As we do this, I want to keep you, I'm going to ask you to be looking out for a few themes that we'll return to later, but just keep them in your head. They are, yeah, I'm going to skip, oh, look at, there's Eutychus. 
Yeah, I'm not keeping up with it, so just <laughs> appreciate the pictures. <laughs> um, things to keep in mind as we read. First of all, integrity. Our actions matter all of the time. Not a one-shot deal. Even more than our words. Followership means repentance. There is sacrifice and hardship awaiting those who are in the Holy Spirit. Proclaiming the gospel and warnings. Paul's examples. And another example for Paul is his ministry and work ethic. Let's read in from verse 17 now. I think I have it on here. From Miletus, Paul sent to, the, to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. And in the midst of severe testing by plots of my Jewish opponents, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you, none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am, not, that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from among your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up, encourage you, and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. In his first letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 11, Paul tells the Corinthians that they should follow his example as he follows the example of Christ. Paul's methodology here should be understood, and I'm going to repeat myself, as being prompted by the encourager. Um, the Ephesian elders through the Holy Spirit. How then, we ask, does he do this? From the first and for the entire three years that Paul spent in Asia, Paul beseeches them to consider his lived example. This exhortation comes 
prior to any assertion he has about them following his public teaching or the warnings that he gets to later. What are the implications of this? Well, first, it should not be a huge surprise, then or now, that the Bible is filled with example after example of this type of understanding. James, the brother of Jesus, I think put it the most succinctly when he said, faith without deeds is dead. I could go on and on about this. And I've personally had many conversations with people who are disillusioned with Jesus because of the way that people in the church treated them. You folk are currently in a Bible college, and that's fantastic. I was there once too. From first-hand experience, however, I know that reading and studying the Word of God can actually be problematic if it's done for its own sake or academic purposes only. At Briarcrest, we called it the bubble effect. I don't know if you guys have something like that here. This would be instead of reading and studying the Word of God for the purpose of getting to know the one about whom it is written. That's why I felt like the song, Follow, I Will Follow, is apt. See, you're not here to study a book. You're here to get to know Jesus. Maybe Bible college is a bit of a misnomer. Maybe it should be Jesus college. We might get made fun of, but hey, as we'll find out, that's probably a good thing too. I love my wife. I think she's terrific. If there were a book written about my wife, I think I would like to read that book. And in reading that book, I might learn some even more terrific things about her that I might not have known had I not read that book. What happens, however, if I start to read the book and like the book more than the person? What if I stop spending time with her altogether because this book is awesome? I probably need some counseling. <laughs> Jesus calls us to follow him. He gave us his spirit. He gave the disciples his spirit at Pentecost to be with them and us always so that we can follow him. His spirit works in a variety of ways, and studying the Bible is certainly one of them. Acts chapter 20 shows us some other ways as well. The first one is that as we follow or practice or do the deeds of faith, Paul is telling us that our actions matter. Our actions matter over time. You might call this integrity. Paul is saying at the same, that he was the same beginning, middle, and end. The entire three years that he was with the Ephesians. I had a grade 9 teacher who used to have a saying that somehow stuck with me. He used to say the measure of a man or woman is in knowing what they would do if they knew they would never be found out. But I think that Paul takes this one step further. Because this isn't about just taking a one-time decision to do or not do the right thing, commission or omission. You see, really, at the end of the day, it's a matter of trust. I'm, I'm fond of using an analogy with, of the boys that I work with, who sometimes have a hard time getting a, a mental grip on how intangible trust is, especially from many of their situations where trust 
is often betrayed by the people they should be able to trust the most. But I think that Paul takes it. Sorry. If you and I are friends, we're buds. And nine times out of ten, when we see each other, we give a high five or pound it or even a little hug. But then one time, we go up for a high five. You're going up for a high five. I punch you in the face. (laughs) You might say something like, what? I thought we were friends. Would it matter to you if I said, well, we, we are friends. I, I mean, most of the time we're giving high fives and we're buddy-buddy. Why should it matter if this one time I punched you in the face? It could be one in ten, could be a hundred, could be a thousand. Does it matter? Probably not. And the next time I go to give you a high five, what are you going to do? Right? Because all you can think about is that one time. All you can think about is this the next time. What we do matters every time. Because it all comes down to trust. And if I'm going to convince you or somebody else to follow a God that you can't see and tell you that he is ultimately trustworthy, I should probably make sure that I'm not kicking you in the shin as I shake your hand. Now, I'm not trying to scare anyone off of making mistakes, maybe being selfish once in a while, or even hurtful. Thing is, trust can be earned and lost. And Paul's message in verse 21 says that his message is all about repentance and faith. You see, I'm pretty sure Paul offended his share of people too. And I bet he even had to apologize. You see, repentance is an action. It's how you show that what you believe makes a difference in your life. I can speak to this personally. I'm sure we all can. Because pride often gets in the way of true repentance. It's one thing to talk about repentance and another thing to do repentance. When was the last time you remember being wrong and then being confronted by somebody about it? How did you handle it? What if their approach sucked? I mean, maybe you hurt them and they're super over, in your estimation, emotional. Maybe they called you a name in the process, you stupid idiot. Maybe they were in the wrong first or two. Did you yell, get angry back, point the finger at them? How dare they? But deep inside, I'm willing to bet that when you're by yourself, and you actually are being honest with yourself at least first, they're probably right, even if they sucked at saying it. Paul was asking the Ephesians to examine his actions and to evaluate his preaching of repentance and faith by his actions. How can he do this unless he had to show them proper repentance? Repentance being literally turning in the other direction walking away from the way you were going. Paul's example? Well, who was he before he met Jesus? He was a murderer of Christians, is what? The remainder of Paul's farewell and encouragement to the Ephesian elders has three other things I just want to pay attention to quickly. The first is the idea of hardship and sacrifice. Where are we on this anyway? Okay. Integrity and trust. 
on fellowship and repentance did that did. <clears throat> In his letter to the Romans, Paul called us living sacrifices. I think I've done it wrong. Romans 12, 1 to 2. But I urge you, brothers. Um, and in 2 Timothy verse 3, verse 12, he says, Indeed, all who want to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Do you want a godly life? Do you want persecution? We live in a culture whose avoidance of pain is pathological. Everything has a quick fix, a pill, an escape mechanism. If life gets too hard, Jesus tells us that if we want to come after him, we need to take up our cross and follow him. Deeds and actions define followership, not words and books and creeds. The church missed this for a lot of years. The word that we use for this is ministry. Practicing the love of Christ through the direction of the Holy Spirit. It is definitively relational. And my hope is that your time at Bible college is intentionally geared towards providing you with the same, oh, there we go, same encouraging tools that Paul is giving to the believers in Asia. This is, as far as I understand Bible college to be, your training ground for ministry. And Paul is telling us that part of that <laughs> must be preparation for hardship and sacrifice and spilt water. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus also tells the multitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed, again another blessed. I love how he front end loads these things. But anyway, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil about you because of me. Notice that he says blessed when, not blessed if. This is also a spirit-led encouragement for us. For when hard time comes our way, I believe that it is something of a personal apologetic that affirms for me, for us, the very faith that we signed on for. The fact that I experience hardship in a world that is hostile to the gospel and the lordship of Jesus Christ can be encouraging. I think that this point relates to the original subtitle of this passage as supplied to me by uh, your president, Mark Maxwell. That one being when Christians are called to hard places. But for me, that lacked some punctuation. Namely, a question mark. For as I worked through Acts chapter 20, I found myself asking, when are Christians not called to hard places? Paul also offers some warnings against wolves, he calls them. Against those who would steal, corrupt, deceive, and distort the truth of the gospel from within and without. In this sense, Paul, is, um, Paul refers to uh, that being a task for the Ephesian elders as they're being the overseers and caretakers of God's flock. In this sense, he's probably alluding, he is alluding to Ezekiel chapter 33, which states that there's a watchman whose job it is to watch out for a sword coming against the land and the people, and... Um, and if he warns them and they don't listen and they end up dying, well, that's their own fault, right? But if he doesn't warn them, if he sees the sword coming and doesn't warn them and they end up dying, it says that God's going to hold the watchman responsible for their blood. 
This is also a statement. Paul says, by virtue of his preaching to anybody, his willingness to speak the gospel wherever he went, the whole purpose of God, he didn't sugarcoat it, that he's innocent of anyone's blood. This is also a statement about consistency and integrity. For if we carry the tale a little bit further, think of it if if the watchman didn't see a sword coming against the land and chose to warn them anyway. What happens to his integrity? You see, if our warning goes unheeded because we've compromised our integrity, well, who's responsible? Paul's work ethic, this is the final thing I wanted us to listen out for in Paul's example. Um, It's the nature of his service. It's the nature of his ministry. And that he was always keen to put in a good day's work. With his own hands, he says, not covetous of money or possessions of others, um, in order to support himself and his companions, and especially those who are weak, he says. This is a very similar theme to the idea of integrity. Day in, day out, hard work. Guess what? People notice these things. Whatever it looks like, whatever your ministry, pray that you'd have an example just like Paul's, which was one of action, consistency, selflessness, and sacrifice. So no matter where you go from this chapel, whatever you do, whatever your ministry, I hope that you find some words, found some words of encouragement here. Not encouragement that puffs you up or pumps your tires. I hope that we were looking under the hood a little bit. Because encouragement through the Holy Spirit sometimes asks us, each of us, to take a long look at ourselves and hear how the Holy Spirit would work in us, calling us to true repentance and a faith that is characterized by actions before our words. Being keen to speak the good news to whomever we meet and to work hard to support ourselves and others in our ministry who are weak. If you want to hear more about my life in ministry with Youth Northeast Edmonton, I'll be in the atrium afterwards. Um, I want to thank you for your time, your ears, your eyes, um, your hospitality. Um, it's been biblical and commendable. Um, thank you. Um, before I close, though, do I have time? Oh, yeah, five minutes. Sweet. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to reread a couple verses right from the end of chapter 20. When he had said this, Paul, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. So what I'd like you to do is form something of a receiving line. We're going to do some embracing and weeping and kissing. No? Maybe I'll stick to praying. Okay. Holy Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the gift of your spirit. This cannot be said loud enough, often enough, strong enough. We are all of us humbled to be called your children. We are amazed that you would continue to work with us in the midst of everything that we are and do. And Lord Jesus, it is out of gratitude, I pray that your spirit would not be stilled in us, but show us the face of Jesus, that we may be a community whose example is repentance, integrity, sacrificial living for the sake of your glory and for the weak, 
And Lord, help us to encourage one another towards these ends. Thank you for this time. So let it be. Amen.